Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to a delicious episode, all about those people who would love to have you for dinner. They're the munching masters of finger food, who put the you in stew. With hands in the saucepan and wrists in the chafing dish, they're the topic of Boys and Ghouls, episode 56. They're cannibals. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Dummies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. think it means trying to look for the right level book yeah so what's going on in the world what's going on <laughs> i don't want to talk about what's going on in the world uh hey cat hey marshall so since we last saw each other we've made some ink we have yes it's so exciting i could just spit we were in Rue Morgue magazine. Yep. My gosh. I know. And it's not huge. Cat, uh, you've, you've never actually seen it. No, I haven't physically touched it. Uh, gimme, gimme. When we found out, we were in the October issue, 2016. And by the time we found a copy, by the time we knew we were even in it, it was the end of October. Yeah. A fan wrote us and was like, hey, like keep up the good work. I heard about you in Rue Morgue. And we're like, like above? <laughs> I know. I ran my little ass over to a Barnes and Noble, and they had already replaced it with their November issue. And I was like, I got a you know worker, and I was like, Do you keep the old issues in the back? She was like, No, we uh, we send them back if we don't sell them. And I was like, No. So I went over to Dark Delicacies. Yep. And they had a few, and I'm like, Three, please. And then like they're ringing me out, and I'm like, I'm a, I'm in a magazine. <laughs> As like a nice husband and wife that run the place. And, yeah. And it was like just them. And I, I was wondering, because there's several spooky stores all in Magnolia, and that's certainly one of them. And I was wondering just what happens in there on November 1st. Mm. It'll just like as soon as the Halloween demand just like shuts down. I'm sure they take a nice breath. Uh, maybe pour themselves a drink and go, <laughs> we, we made it. They were just sort of puttering around. I was the only one in the store. I've met both of them. They're both super, super sweet. Yeah. So... Cat, here's the magazine. I'm so excited. Which is like, like we've been on online periodicals before. Sure. And uh, I mean, as boys and ghouls and cat on your own, you went viral. Yeah. But to actually be in a printed publication. Well, and like I went viral for, you know, something that happened, but for, for something we did. I, Do I, you know I, what I mean? Yeah. That's different. And plus, man, if this isn't so much easier to <gasps> explain to our parents... Oh, no kidding. Well, sort of, except that when I sent my mother the photos that you sent me of the article, of the write-up, and I was like, my podcast got written up in a magazine, she was like, oh, you're a published author! And I was like, 
Yeah! Sure. I didn't want to, I didn't need to, you know, take the time to explain it. No, what it is, is um, there's an article. Let's find the article together. There it is. Uh, page 29. You're on it. <laughs> I am and on it. There what, I am. What would you call that? I mean, I described it to you, like, I went outside the store and just sat down and, like, took a picture of it and sent it to you. And I described it as a little less than a quarter of a page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a picture of us, and you'd think, like, isn't it someone's job to, like, call us or something? I know. The answer is no. I guess not. I even told Ricky, I was like, you know, if they had called us, I would have asked them to credit his photo. Shout out to Ricky Middlesworth, who took our amazing promo shots. But man, we're on a page with 40 Ounces of Horror, another podcast, Anything Ghost, which I haven't heard of. I have heard of 40 Ounces of Horror. I have heard of the Black Tapes. Campfire I have Radio not Theater. heard of Campfire Radio well, that's why they make these articles. I know. And it's, um, let's see, from fright films to genre feminism, original fiction to super fandom, we round up 25 podcasts horror fans need to hear. It continues on for the next few pages. Huntcast, that's one of them. And also, as I'm looking at this... The article, it says, Introduction by Andrea Subasati, and then there are a list of names of people who've written these up, one of whom is Alexandra West, and Andrea and Alex co-host a podcast I listen to called The Faculty of Horror, which I may or may not have talked about here on Boys and Ghouls before. I don't believe you have. That's totally right up my alley. They're both delightfully Canadian. They have these beautiful little Canadian accents, and they both, I think they both teach, and at any rate... The way their podcast is formatted is they will take a topic, kind of like you and I do, but they talk about it from an academic perspective, and they also will give you required reading. So there are articles they'll point you to that are great supplements to, or books and movies to watch, and then they talk really intelligently about them, and I love it. That name again? It's called The Faculty of Horror. But to know that those two hosts, I, I knew that they wrote for Room Org, but... But that they know who you are? Yeah. It's so very cool. They describe my voice as fatherly. Yeah, sure. And balanced out by Kat, who's got the energy of a daytime talk show host. I'll take it. I think that's probably pretty accurate. Sounds good to me. It's completely thrilling. It's so cool to have... I feel like their write-up was really uh, Welcome to Night Vale. Awesome. Wow. I didn't... Oh, my God. Oh, look. Okay, The Faculty of Horror. It's right there. Okay. On their list. Forever Midnight, which I've also heard of. The last podcast on the left is consistently in, like, the top 20 of iTunes of their comedy lists. I mean, these guys make their living on this podcast now, and the fact that we're on the same list as them is ridiculous. Lore. People love lore. No Sleep Podcast. Alec listens to that. This is so cool. I didn't realize what a great... Oh, and Shockwaves. We're on the list with Shockwaves. I mean, that's an honor and a half to be on this list. And I mean, yeah, like you said, welcome to Night Vale. That's ridiculous. All right. Wow. Well, folks, you're listening to two people who have never seen themselves in a magazine before. If you could see our faces. And it's a good review. It is. Also. I think it's a decidedly... Well, well I, mean, I mean, the I frame of the article of is... Yeah, it's, are, it's are positive. You, you, There's plenty of people who make content, and it's like, hey, they wrote it up, you know, about my uh, like my book or my, right. my movie. And then you read it, and just like, oh, they didn't like it. Oh, everyone who reads this probably won't check it out. Whereas this is literally the opposite. Absolutely. Really just a, a feather in the cap for it a is. couple of people who have been doing this for five years. Absolutely. Almost five. Almost five years. Yeah. Wow. Right? That's cool. I needed that today. I will sleep with that under my pillow tonight, probably. 
let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to eat. How to marinate the meat. Let me teach you how to eat. It's a culinary treat. Let me teach you how to eat. That. Marshall. As with every November, you've picked our topic. Mm-hmm. You usually try to find something that can be tied in with Thanksgiving. To varying degrees of success. Yep. And so for this year, you're like, Thanksgiving, food, cannibals. And not a million titles really burst to mind. Mm -hmm. When you're like, well, no, that was a zombie. And then, well, those were ghouls. Uh-huh. Cannibal, by our definition, right. is a person who's not a vampire, not a zombie, not a ghoul. Who is then eating another person? Yes, that's right. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Hannibal Lecter, famously. Yes. And there's a dinner party in the beginning of Red Dragon where you know it's like the violin player mm. and people are sitting around eating it and they're like, oh, Hannibal, you really must tell us what's in the, you know, in the dish. And yeah. Like, oh, if I told you, you wouldn't like it. <laughs> and that's one form of people who eat people in movies, which is the unaware uh-huh. people. Yeah. And Sweeney Todd, the movie, falls under that. Yeah. Which is like the people go in the pies. And then they eat the pies, but they're not just like, give me some fingers and toes and yeah. brains and spleens. Soylent Oy. Green. Soylent Green. Soylent Green, which is, is people. people. Yeah. Yeah. That one gets processed, and the whole point is nobody knows that it's people. So, yeah, you've got a whole civilization of essentially cannibals, but they're like the unaware kind. Mm -hmm. And there's a real, I'll just say, perversity to like watching someone eat people. Yes. Without them knowing that that's what they're eating. Yes. Mmm, it does go well with a chicken. Delicious again, Peter. And then there's the cannibals who are doing it just as like a meat substitute. The Sawyer family in Texas Chainsaw would fall under that. Mm. Sort of a, like a, a meat's meat kind of thing. And then there's, I guess, to like establish dominance slash gain their power or their essence. You're totally cutting into all of my, like, historical stuff. All right. Well, that was just cannibals and movies. That's true. And we'll get into movies more right after a cat cracks the book <laughs> and tells us a little factual information on the topic. Well, when we're tackling something as big as cannibalism, kind of like how we, we were like vampires one time. Well, we did vampire brothels, episode two. Yeah. But as big and broad a topic as this and as taboo as this, I think deserves a little historical context. And things get pretty interesting when you start researching cannibalism. It's a history lesson come to life. So there is evidence, both archaeological and genetic, that cannibalism has been practiced for tens of thousands of years. This is a very long tradition in human history. I believe it just because it feels like the further we go, the less we would do it. Mm. So if it happened at all, yeah, it would be kind of way back there. Not as far back or as... if it happened a lot. Right. If there was if, ever if a period where it happened practice. a lot, mm -hmm. it would be like way in the yesteryear. Right. And now it happens every now and then. Well, yeah. Less and it's less remarkable. All the time. Cannibalism. 
The word cannibalism can be traced to have been used first to describe the island Carib, also known as the Kalinago people of the Lesser Antilles, which is a group of islands in the Caribbean. So these so, guys did it so much, they named it after them? Well, no, not so much. It's just that during the early colonial period, so we're talking around the 1500s, this is when these explorers were encountering these, quote, savage people who... And this is going to get tricky here, so I'll qualify this, but according to these colonial explorers, these savages ate each other. Mm -hmm. But they may have embellished these aspects to rationalize enslaving these people. And this is unfortunately kind of a common thread that I found when researching this, which was that anytime these explorers wanted to enslave a group of people, they were like, mm, they're savages, they're cannibals. No, sometimes they were. Among the Kalinago... They did sometimes cannibalize people, but it was apparent most of the time associated with rituals related to the eating of war enemies, like you just said. I'm a cannibal, hombre! But some of the Europeans who traveled there and found them just believed that they practiced cannibalism all the time. So eating each other, you know, it was just rampant. They were just cannibals. Just when Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. But the reality was they probably were just eating their enemies. Oh, father, what are we, cannibals? In 1503, Queen Isabella of Spain ruled that people who were better off under slavery could legally be taken as slaves. And of course, that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. So whenever these explorers decided that a group of people would be really great to use as slaves, they would say, well, they're cannibals. So obviously they'd be better off being enslaved by us because then they won't be eating each other. So that was just kind of one group to kind of give you an idea. They were the ones that cannibalism was named after. That's how we get the word. But in general, cannibalism has been widespread in the past among humans in pretty much all parts of the world. You can find it on almost all the continents, lots of different parts of every country, in various parts of history, there have been cannibals. No, so it's kind of ubiquitous, maybe not no crazy one claims common. ownership over cannibalism. Right. It's just a thing that humans tend to do sometimes. Hey, what kind of an initiation is this? of cannibalism. So this is kind of an honorable mention category because it's not really the most prevalent, but early, early, early humans, before cultural traditions sprang up of burying or burning the dead when people would die, mm -hmm. so before people had even thought to bury a body in the ground or to burn the body, they would have a body and bodies rot. And it was kind of a form of predator control to eat them before it, the smell could attract wild animals. Wild animals. So okay. there's that. Those cats were cannibals. Maybe they're only headhunters. Only headhunters. It's the only head I got. I'm very attached to it. Ritualistic cannibalism. So war practices, eating your enemies, funerary practices, cultural practices, survival cannibalism. The Donner Party is a good example. Sure. The food runs out. I believe, unless I've got this wrong, you look at another person, and then they sort of transform into a giant hot dog. Turkey leg. Or turkey leg, <laughs> but like with feet sometimes, <laughs> and some of your facial features. I think that's the scientific process of yeah, how that and, works. And then they're like, what, what are you looking at? And you're like, nothing. <laughs> and then from somewhere, you will put a napkin, a cloth napkin, <laughs> yeah. around around your neck and produce a knife and fork. <laughs> 
and then run a cauldron full of water and start boiling it and tossing in carrots. carrots. (laughs) And they go, what are you doing? And you go, nothing. And then you rubbing, giving them a salt rub. Yes. That you have. You're just rubbing it on the skin. Um, Sexual cannibalism. So the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. A lot of times he ate their genitals. There's a few puns. Mm-hmm. In mind right now, mm-hmm. and that is something you'll find with cannibal horror. So films. many puns. It's pun heavy. Yes. You know what, cat? I've got a bone to pick with you. <laughs> uh, okay. I don't really. Everything's cool. So good, thank God. Um, the technical words for eating someone within your same community or tribe is endocannibalism, and then of course exocannibalism is eating someone outside the group. So like the war ritual situation. But as far as endocannibalism, eating someone within your group, would be a way to gain immortality or powers. Sometimes it would be a part of the grieving process. So a funerary practice, but specifically as a way to grieve, a way to mourn, it's a way to honor the dead is by eating them. Or as a way of guiding the souls of the dead into the bodies of the living descendants. So my father dies, I eat some of his flesh, he becomes a part of me. Now, I Doesn't sound so bad when you say it like that. It doesn't. It sounds nice. And a specific case that, I don't know about you, but when I took, like, my anthropology 101 class in college, we learned about the Kuru epidemic in Papua New Guinea. The laughing disease? Yes. Okay, I didn't take anthropology, mm. but I did read that in an uh, old coffee table book of Ripley's Believe It or Not. I bet you did. Believe it or not. So, you're more likely to get this disease called Kuru, which is a type of spongiform encephalopathy which means it creates tiny holes in your brain, which is really upsetting, which is why you start you losing motor function and laugh uncontrollably. You lose control over your emotions, which would often lead to that, yes. But you're more likely to get Kuru if you eat the brains than if you eat the fleshy parts of the body. And what happened is in this Papua New Guinea tribe is that the men would be allowed to eat the fleshy parts of the body first, and the women and the children got the cast off the brains. Uh. So to make this charming, if it can be, mm-hmm. the idea here among these people in Papua New Guinea is if the body was buried, it would be eaten by worms. If it were placed on a platform, it would be eaten by maggots. They believed it was much better that the body was eaten by people who loved the deceased than by worms and insects. Instead of some birds. Absolutely. And this, to me, is out of everything I watched and read, my favorite detail about this. And I did not expect to feel empowered as a, okay. as a lady. Episode highlight. Okay. Right Get ready for it. In our episode about cannibals. It was primarily adult women who did the cooking, and they consumed a lot of different parts of the body. Now, I know that I said that, you know, a lot of times the women got the brains, and that was where the diseases came from. But they also ate other parts of, of the body. And that is because... Their bodies were thought to be capable of housing and taming the dangerous spirit that would sometimes accompany a dead body. So the women took on the role of consuming the dead body and giving it a safe place inside their own body, taming it for a period of time during what they considered to possibly be a dangerous period of mortuary ceremonies. So women were considered able to tame dead body spirits. Yes, uniquely capable. And, and that a man could not. Absolutely. So they were protectors in that way, which unfortunately meant that genetically they were more predisposed to develop Kuru, which is this horrible disease, which is, by the way, pretty much eradicated now because... Less people eating? Less people eating. Four young and fearless Americans, children of the space age, armed with cameras, microphones, and curiosity. Alan Yates, 
Faye Daniels and their two cameramen and inseparable friends, Jack Anders and Martin Lamont. Four youngsters who never came back. Are they still alive? And if so, where are they? These are the questions that the rescue team sponsored by New York University and the Pan American Broadcasting System hope to be able to answer. Marshall, I have, uh, I have to apologize to you. Go on. Well, you see, when I suggested this topic, I said, Cannibal Holocaust. I've heard a lot about this movie. It's really controversial. I've never seen it. I feel like I should have seen it because people talk about it all the time. And uh, so we'll talk about that for the podcast. And then I watched Cannibal Holocaust. And I'm sorry for making you watch that. We couldn't have done a cannibal episode without Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, that makes me feel better. It's far too highly placed in the genre. Phew! And... As a couple of uh, horror podcasters, written up in October's issue of Room Org. Check it out. Even if we didn't have an episode about cannibalism, it was high time we checked out the infamous movie Cannibal Holocaust. The part that most grabbed me was its pioneering of the found footage film. I think that's important to talk about. And we should say it came out in 1980. Yes. An Italian film directed by... Directed uh, by an Italian. Yeah, Deodato. Rogero Deodato. Professor Harold Monroe, NYU's noted anthropologist, has taken part in various expeditions exploring primitive cultures. But this will be his first journey into Amazonia. A professor. A professor. This professor is sent uh, with a rescue team. Down in South America. Yes, an investigatory team to go... Find out what happened to these three, two men and a, and a woman, right? Or was it three? Three men and a woman. Uh-huh. And he finds, well, they're dead. They've been eaten. And he finds, like, their remains sort of shaped into a horrible effigy. Yeah, I'll say. And their sealed film cans are hung like talismans around the cannibal camp. And he has to make friendly with the chief. And part of doing that is he has to eat a slain warrior from, like, another tribe. Mm -hmm. So he's determined because he has to know what happened to them, and without getting what's in those film canisters, he can't know. Yeah, so he does eat a person. And that's one of those means to an end, eating of a person in cannibal films. Then he gets the footage back to New York, and then if the movie has a message, it's really couched in the portions where he's He's talking to the studio executives. Yeah, this is all funded by, like, a TV network. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we got to put this on the air. It's our responsibility to, sh- to share what they're, happened they're to these They're rabid people. for ratings. Yeah. They're just soulless. Notably, this came out just a few years after Network made its mark. Mm-hmm. I can't help but feel that was an influence. And a lot of the language that they use is very on the nose of, you know, the professor has a discussion with one of the women executives and they talk openly about like, what are the ethics of this, of, of exploiting these people? And she's like, who cares? It's fabulous ratings. Yeah. But the professor is like, no, this stuff, this is a, uh, is pretty hardcore. Yeah. What we're going to see. He's like, I don't think you understand how bad. And what so I'm he show sits him down and shows it to him. And at the end, they're just like, Ugh, burn it. Yeah. And you're kind of feeling the same way. Yeah. And so that portion of it, and there's a few portions before when they're like in the editing room, is the found footage portion of the film. It was that chunk of it which has gone on. It wasn't like Cannibal Holocaust and then nothing and then Blair Witch. Mm -hmm. There was a few things in the interim, but none made as big a splash as Blair Witch. 
And I can't help but wonder if that's not the one that just did it most closely, which is like, mm. we found this footage. Right. It's found in the sense that like, we found these in the woods. And we are showing it to you. Yeah. To solve a mystery of what happened to these people. Right. And whereas Blair Witch, it's a bit of a mystery still. Mm-hmm. You get a very clear idea of what happened. It turns out these documentarians are crazy jerks. They are the worst human beings alive. It's this really interesting feeling you have watching it where you watch them set fire to these. Now, these, now, oh, these natives are cannibals. For sure. Yeah. But They're nothing can justify the cruelty. Well, I mean, I guess all of this is up for debate. But yes, the Americans think, oh, this is going to be really great for a documentary. They literally light their homes on fire with people inside, and they're like, get this, get this, it's a good shot. The men, I mean, this is kind of... They're they're trying to, like, fake a battle in between the two warring tribes, Mm -hmm. herding the tribes people, like, into the hut and then setting it on fire and trying to keep them in as long as they can. Really deplorable. And meanwhile... the gang rape. The gang rape, which is kind of the climax. And and meanwhile, um, the female of the group, her concern... You're burning, wasting film. You're wasting film. We've only got three cans left. So when they do get eaten and chopped up and beheaded and, in her case, also raped. Yep. You're just... You don't feel too bad for you them, don't, do you? You really, you really don't. No. Nope. Which is an ugly way to feel. And I think that's one of the things that is just well, so really disturbing about the movie is the feeling of, like... I mean, you go through myriad emotions well, watching the movie. You're kind of on the natives, the cannibal side by that point. Sure, for sure. But at the same time, like, the, the stuff that's happening to them is so ugly. You don't ever want to root for that kind of thing to happen to anyone, no matter how depraved they are. And like because you kind of do, you just leave it feeling gross. Yes, that's and, exactly right. And that's right. the way the professor, at the end of watching it, everyone in the room is just like, <gasps> and he leaves. And they tag a little thing at the end being like, I wonder who the real cannibals are. Right. Well, the cannibals. Right. But, I see your point. <laughs> yes. Touche. Oh, good Lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. With the almost profound respect these primitives have for virginity. This is the one fact that I knew about Cannibal Holocaust before I really even knew much about anything about it, which was that the director was brought up on charges for killing people in the film because yes. people thought it was real. But he had to produce them yeah, he had at to trial. Them. And I think he also produced footage of like the woman on the stick at well, the end yeah, him, of like her talking to the crew. Like Yeah, after and he had to show death. that well it was a woman impaled mm-hmm. from the underneath out the mouth really an image and he had to demonstrate that 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 was done with like a bicycle seat a bicycle seat that she was sitting on and then just a a very light piece of balsa wood that she kept in her mouth and then just like held still while they you know checked her out it's an effect one of the things that's so infamous about this movie are the six actual animals who are killed on film I think I texted you and I said I'm not being a hero. I fast-forwarded through animal deaths. I couldn't, could not, and would not watch. Do not blame you. The biggest argument for that, I guess, is for any of us who really dig Apocalypse Now, and you're like, well, they slaughtered the cow in Apocalypse Now. And if you try to say, yeah, but they ate the cow, you can say, yeah, but they ate the turtle. Right. And they ate the monkey. Yeah. And I don't know if they ate the pig. So they weren't just like... 
Take that, turtle. <laughs> right, except that they kick the pig. They do kick the I pig. I saw that much. So, I mean, regardless of whether morally it ultimately was okay, I mean, that's debatable, whether you eat something or not, if it's suffering before it dies, just the act of watching it happen, which I think also hits something inside of us if we're the type of people that contemplate this sort of thing, of like, well, if you're a meat eater, then why yeah. do you find it so hard to watch these animals there's, be killed? Because you know that's how you get your food, right? That chicken we ate didn't volunteer. Right. There's a quote from a Lloyd Kaufman of Troma Films talking about this movie and he said that what those scenes provide is you're watching it and you know that's real. Yeah. The monkey and the muskrat and there's a snake that they kill also right before chopping a guy's leg off. Okay, case in point. So you see a real snake go Yep. And your brain is processing that real killing. Yeah. And then they try to cut off the guy's leg because he was bitten to like save his life and then cauterize it. So while your brain is already in real mode, then that leg chopping off is extra real. Yep. And therefore it works. As a formula, though, I'm glad that didn't catch on. Otherwise, before every movie gore, there would be an animal death. Right. <laughs> so. Yes. And I like this quote from a writer for Slant Magazine who says of Cannibal Holocaust, this sums it up nicely for me. Artful enough to demand serious critical consideration, yet foul enough to christen you a pervert for even bothering. Well, that says it all. Doesn't it? Cannibal Holocaust is the number one cannibal film of all time. There's a famous scene where a girl is impaled on a pole. This makeup artist had to bring her in, and he had to fly the actors from New York and say, no, I didn't actually kill the people. That's how cool that movie is. I checked out Green Inferno by Eli Roth. Sumo Dan is a fan of the film. And he sent us both a little thing of Eli Roth he kind did. of giving you a little setup to it, which I think was pretty helpful. It was. Going into it, and he explains, like, well, I was really going for a look at like people out to help uh, for causes who aren't necessarily doing it for the right reasons. And aren't even really that educated about the cause. Doing it to say that they stand for something, and which is really for, selfish. And... Yeah, for selfish reasons, right? I guess. And I suppose uh, Eli Roth has had an ass full of those guys. <laughs> because he gets a group of them, and they go to the Amazon, to the Green Inferno, to help save an indigenous tribe. They're playing Rex. The indigenous tribe doesn't see any difference between them and the people trying to kill them. So they get uh, caged and eaten. And it is, by and large, for that portion of the film, sort of an escape, like, how are you going to get out of this one? Mm kind of film. What? And Eli Roth to, has never done that before. The concept of which Sumo Dan finds very appealing and kind of like really wraps you in. And the people aren't just there to be victims. Mm -hmm. Their stories don't end upon being captured. Their characters continue to progress. Mm -hmm. Which actually surprised me. Quite a bit. So Green Inferno. Better than the trailer would lead you to believe. Which is why I think that little preamble by Eli Roth that he did for like Fandango. Yeah. Is, uh, it was really so fascinating. And, you know, he talks about working with the indigenous people and what... Oh, the, yeah, the making of Having it. to explain to them what a movie was. They're trash! And they got nothing but naked people in them! You know what, folks? I think you know who you are. If you think you'd like this movie, you've probably already seen it. <laughs> if you're on the fence, check it out. The sky is blue and all the leaves are green The sun's as warm as a I 
commercial I checked out, as I think you did, Cannibal, the musical. I watched that's it. with an exclamation point? It is. With, that's why I said Cannibal. I watched it. I've heard it. Of this movie for years and See, never checked it out. sadly and embarrassingly, I hadn't. The way I heard about it was I watched Cannibal Holocaust on Shudder. Love, love Shudder. And then when I finished watching it, there were like, like this. And there was like Cannibal Ferox. And I was like, no, thank you. I think I've had my share of cannibal exploitation films. I'm full. I'm full. I'm full. Very good, Marshall. But it said Cannibal the Musical. And I was like, well, if I'll be... You'd never heard of it? No. And I was like, I'll be good and gosh darned if this isn't exactly what I need right now after seeing (laughs) the horrors of Cannibal Holocaust. So I click on it and I'm like, wait a second. And when I realize who's behind it and what it is, I was like, this is... What? It's uh, Trey Parker. Matt Stone's in there as well. He plays a part, and he's one of the characters, who I didn't recognize right away. He no, I didn't either. It took me a while. Well into it. But then and once he opened his mouth and started talking a lot, I was like, oh, yeah. They're both so young. but the College. Ta- yeah. The talent is already there. Yeah. And if you're not following, these are the two guys who created and are still doing season 20 of South Park. And boy, oh boy, do you see the germs. And yeah. well, by the way, they would begin South Park the next year? No. Um, they made it in 93, but it didn't get distribution until 96. 96. Okay. And so then, three years later. When, a year from when it got distributed, yeah. They were already working on what was called like the Christmas card. And, and that became South Park. Go, Santa! Go, Jesus! They didn't get as good as satirists, let's say, as social comedians uh-huh. as they would become. No, but you can they see... they were still in college. Right, but you can see... The, I mean, there were, yeah, there were you, you lots of times when I was laughing out loud. Of, well, I, can, I swear I could hear bits of what sounded like Blame Canada. I could hear Cartman's voice oh, in the there's, background. Oh, there's a part where it's clearly Cartman's voice. There was a little bit where someone sounded like Mr. Garrison. <sighs> and just his sort of... Uh, Trey Parker would play the all shucks. He, he played... The real guy, Alfred Packer, mm-hmm. would play him as like this guy whose best friend is his horse. And he's just like, oh, gee, guys, I don't really know. Do you want to go to Colorado? Yeah, so we, should, we should say it's a story of a man named Alfred. Sometimes Alfred. he spelled his name instead of Alfred. different from Alfred. But Alfred Alfred Packer, yeah. who went on the trail from Utah to Colorado with four or five other men and wound up the only survivor and... He cannibalized them, and there was some dispute over whether he killed them to eat them, and he ended up yeah, and it, going it on trial. Yeah, it opens with this like, crazy like murder spree where he's just like, got this big beard, and he's just like, just like grabbing body parts and eating them. And, and then Blood you find is squirting. Out, yeah. yeah, that's just being described in the court, and he's like, it didn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. It was eventually distributed by Troma Films. Yep, speaking of Lloyd Kaufman. Yeah, and on its own... It's fun. It's a fun little thing. It is. There are parts that are kind of not as great as others. Yeah. But all in all, like, it's, I 100% recommend it. Just a great accomplishment of young people. Like, you can tell that they're filming in, like, one of those, like, historic towns. Like, here's a blacksmith shop, and here's the... And they made it for, like, a hundred and something, like, a little over a hundred grand. They said that they filmed it over a bunch of weekends and also their spring break, and that I think the whole crew failed their history of film final or something like that because they were just filming instead of studying. Um, But apparently, before they got distribution, it was named, like, something about Alfred Packer or something. But Troma had them rename it Cannibal the Musical because, I guess, in Utah or Colorado... I don't know who claims it. Utah. Colorado? Whichever state kind of claims him as, like, 
their story is familiar with Just Alfred like Packer. Baltimore claims Edgar Allan Poe when really Philadelphia. Right, exactly. You're is proving my point. Poe House is wrote most of his good stuff in Philly. He wrote his spookiest stuff in Baltimore. Yeah, because the city's a nightmare. They needed to rename it Cannibal the Musical because outside of that particular state, who is pretty darn familiar with the story, it's a local, like well-known locally. Nobody like knows. Nobody who he knows. Is. Yeah, exactly. Wait, you're cutting into his butt. Well, what kind of piece do you want? Well, not butt. The actual cannibalism part comes much like what happened with the Donner Party, which is, you know, they get a lot more lost. It takes a lot longer than they think. There's and, a storm. There's a snowstorm. And someone dies of natural causes. Or, uh... I think the story is one person... I'm kind of confusing what actually happened and what they put in the movie, but I think it's like... One person died of natural causes, so they ate him. And then one of the people started just killing people, and then Packer killed that guy. Yeah. At least that's the best anyone's been able to put together. Right. Based on his own testimony and physical evidence they found. Because that's all you have to go on. Yeah. Postscript to the Alfred Packer story. At the University of Colorado Boulder, there is the Alfred Packer Restaurant and Grill. Whoa! On campus. And let me guess, if you're ever anywhere close to that campus, that's the first place you're going to eat. What's on the menu? Panini. Mmm. El Cannibal Mexican Specialties. Oh, they're really embracing it. There's the grab-and-go menu, which includes healthy snacks, but also has a Jamba Juice. Mmm. Juicy. So, he will live on forever as the namesake of an ironically named... University cafeteria. <laughs> what was the Donna party? They were a party of settlers in covered wagon times. They got snowbound one winter in the mountains. They had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. So, of the same time period, which is the um, Western expansion, that's when perhaps the more famous. More recent in history. And much, much sadder story of the Donner Party. Yes. We all know its name. I don't think we, we do. all know. It's like some guy named Donner. Yes. So for some reason, I feel like I've always heard the Donner Party referred to as like a punchline. Donner Party One. Exactly. And now that I have read through every single word of the Wikipedia page... I Boys feel... and ghouls, we read Wikipedia, so you don't have to. I know. But you know, Wikipedia is pretty good fact-check-wise. And some pages are more comprehensive than others, and the Donner Party one is at once compelling and also incredibly depressing. It's a good read if you want to read through it. It, will, it won't not make you sad. Uh, so the Donner Party, it was an American, a group of American pioneers led by George Donner, the patriarch of his family, and James Reed. So there were two parties, two families. The Donners and the Reeds, who set out for California in a wagon train in May of 1846. They were delayed by a series of mishaps and mistakes and spent the winter of 1846 to 1847 snowbound in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Of the 87 members of the initial party, 48 survived to reach California, many of them having eaten the dead for survival. I like to keep these kinds of trips in mind when I have to fly back across the country mm -hmm. to like go home. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, ugh. I, I was know. like, well, 
I didn't have to eat my horse. And this story is much more tragic than I ever knew, in part because you can kind of trace, like, the fact of their derailment to one moment. So there was a man named Lansford W. Hastings who went to California in 1842 and saw the promise of the underdeveloped country to encourage settlers. And, of course, there was a spirit in the air at that time of manifest destiny, right? The idea that we were, as Americans, ordained by God with the responsibility of populating from sea to shining sea, right? And so Lansford Hastings wanted to encourage settlers. He was inspired to do so. And he published, I don't know if it was a book or just a tract, like a pamphlet or something, called The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, advertising a route that he had mapped out that he says was quicker than the Oregon Trail, which was the common trail that most people took. It was well beaten. Lots of people. And even that trail wasn't. And even that one was no spring. You could get dysentery. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. But this man, he had a buddy who had like an outpost, a trading post, along this new trail. And he wanted to divert business over to his buddy. So he's like, go this way. Yes. Don't go that way. And so some people had gone forward through this new trail and found it to be really, really arduous and difficult. And a journalist sent letters out trying to warn them of the harshness of the trail, but they never received the letter. Uh, it just didn't get to them in time. And so they set out anyway. And there are a lot of details about fits and starts and some of them going and then some coming back. And then they try and then they get stuck and this wheel falls off. And the various details of everything that happened are really sad to read. But ultimately, the final kind of leg of the journey where all the really awful stuff happened. In the Sierra Nevadas. Yes. They got caught in horrible storms of winter. And they came upon these two kind of like ramshackle makeshift cabins that travelers had thrown up and they would take shelter in there and it was also disproportionately large amount of children to adults which is also you realize like all of them were suffering and starving but it was mostly children the packer story was all men yeah there's no kids there that's right i'm so hungry i could eat at arby's oh my gosh they got so hungry that they like I guess there were rugs made out of like animal skin on the floor of the cabins and they, they cut them that. up and ate that and they were eating their shoes you know but some of the most horrific details of all of this are when they were finally rescued some of them cuz many some, of them died just occurred to me Yeah when they got around to eating people and that's where all this is going Mhm were any of the people eating children I don't think so Somehow that's better I don't think they ever ate any of the kids But kids ate people? Kids ate people and kids were starving, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, again, as with the Alfred Packer story, the stuff we know comes from word of mouth accounts that the survivors told if they were willing to open up about what happened, which most of them weren't, didn't want to talk about it, scarred them for life. And then diaries that some of them kept and then lies that some of them told because they didn't want to admit to having eaten each other. Who knows if someone actually murdered somebody to eat them. It was rumored that one man did and he lived out the rest of his life kind of as a pariah because people thought he had murdered some of his compatriots and he said he didn't. You know, there's that kind of stuff. What what have you been eating? Uh, them. But, like, they were fresh and and mainly the butts. Not the dirty part of the butts. That's, that's, Really close to the site of where those cabins were, where the final stragglers were kind of holed up for months. There's a memorial to the Donner Party and, like, their struggles. Because 
they, you know, the, their story was splashed. Of course, the cannibalism stuff was splashed across the country. It was in sure. uh, some papers would report more gruesome details than others, but the details were out there, at least insofar as they knew them. And so the whole country was completely riveted. But it seems like these people, while you know they were just one group of you know people who encountered hardships, their story was just like uniquely ugly, and they seemed to represent something about that journey that so many people took. And to me, I kind of feel like even though the... um, They were the worst case scenario. It seems like it. And even though their monument is in wherever it is, not California, I kind of found myself going like, I want California to kind of like claim that as um, just another in a long sorted line of like awful, ghosty, kind of like... California just feels like such a haunted place for so many reasons, especially Los Angeles. It feels like such a good fit to you. It feels like a good fit. And it we feels, should have something because, remembering the Donner Party. Because so many people, well, I don't know about that. Oh. But the reason L.A. feels so haunted to me and is so full of, like, murder and intrigue and all of that is in part because since people were settling California, it's been a place that people look to as this is going to solve our problems. This is how we fulfill our dreams. This is our manifest destiny. This is where the gold is. This is... You know, insert. This is where I'm going to make it into the film industry. This is, you know, and so many people. We made our trips. We made our trips, but so many people, even if they do make it here, wind up broken and sad, and it wasn't what they thought. Yeah, your journey's not over once you get here. Right, and some people don't even make it here, and that's why I would like California to be able to honorarily claim the Donner Reed party as some of their ghosts, even though they didn't die here because they were trying to get here. All right. I'm sending you to California, Fort Spencer. We have four missing soldiers, Captain, and no bodies. Uh-huh. Captain John Boyd is out to solve a mystery, but he is about to discover Something he never imagined. Winged eagle. It's an old Indian myth from the north. Man eats the flesh of another. (gasps) He absorbs the other man's strength. Now, one man must choose. We need others. Between having dinner. Not me. And being dinner. (laughs) That's so annoying. Set around the same time period, which came to theaters in 1999, was Ravenous with Guy Pearce. Have you ever seen it? I haven't, uh, but I like Guy Pearce. Also got uh, Robert Carlyle from Train Spotting, like mm. Begbie, and Jeffrey Jones, who never turns ah. in a bad performance. But it's tough making friends. The beginning kind of follows the beats of Dances with Wolves. This guy goes to this outpost really in the middle of nowhere. From the trailer, which I still remember from like 99, it seemed like he gets there and everyone's cannibals and everyone's crazy. It's not that. Things are just sort of uh, chugging along at this outpost where nothing ever happens. And Robert Carlyle shows up as the lone survivor of a Donner Party-esque, ill-fated wagon train, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he, he tells the tale and then he's like, and then we ate our shoes and, you know, we ate the dogs. And then I know where this is going. You know, then we ate each other, and I'm the only one who survived. Except there might still be two people up there. So they all go up there to look, and it turns out it was like a big trap. He just wanted to get them on their home turf and get them from there. However, Guy Pierce, as like the main guy, starts to suspect, which was backed up by some Indian tales, that when they're eating the human flesh, 
it gives them like powers. They're like absorbing the spirits of the people they're eating and it'll like sort of cure them of whatever ails them at the time. Mm. And that sounds like the Sanderson sisters, except they're just sucking souls, not eating flesh. Good point of reference. Mm -hmm. The movie keeps on going and almost sort of turns into like a vampire film where they're just sort of like, hey, man, join us. All you have to do is uh, eat this stew we made out of your friend. <gasps> I don't want to. Stab. Now you've got to. Because it'll, you know. It'll heal you. It'll heal you. And so eventually it's like the good guy who's also eaten people and, and the bad guy who's been eating people so much it cured him of tuberculosis. He gets him into a position where they're both going to die, basically. They're in like a big bear trap. This is at the conclusion of a really great fight through a ghosty town outpost you know using whatever is around them to like fight each other with and he's like if you die first i'm going to eat you they're like mushed up against each other dying in this bear trap mm -hmm. he's like if you die first i'm gonna eat you if i die first bon appetit Ooh. it's a good movie funnier than you'd think and it could have been sort of subversively funny but it decided to let you know from Go that it was funny with just a funny quote in the beginning that had like a cartoon sound effect. It was like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> but it sort of seemed like it was just sort of science. Eat a person, it cures whatever ails you. Like it wasn't limited to like that region of America. It didn't come with sort of some kind of extraneous Native American curse or something. It was just like feeling poorly, eat a person. Them's the rules. You'll have to do it forever because it's addictive. But whatever's wrong with you, it'll fix you. And it just felt like that was just science. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, if that was true, that would have been discovered way back in the day and just be a part of our society instead of something that was just stumbled upon in the Sierras. Mm -hmm. Sure. That aside, really fun. It's now like 17 years old. And if you didn't catch it when it was first around, give a look to the good cast, good music, gory. Mm-hmm. But uh, pretty fun, and one of the few Westerns set before the Civil War. Most Westerns tend to be uh, during to after. This uh -huh. is one of those, like, they're in California. Yeah. And you don't get too much of that in the movies. A time period I don't get to see a whole lot of. Yes, yes, 100%. And that's ravenous. Nice. <laughs> I know how to wrap that up. Are you ready for an adventure in fine dining? So many puns. Puns, puns, puns. Come out of cannibal movies. None more so than the introduction to the Tales from the Crypt, What's Cooking? You um, can always count on the Crypt Keeper for a boatload of puns. Trivia tells me that this episode had the highest ratings. Really? Any other episode of Tales from the Crypt. This was an episode that aired in 1992. Season 4, episode 6 of Tales from the Crypt. And it stars... I don't remember the wife, what her name is. I should have looked at her name, but the standout for me, Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve plays the hopeful entrepreneur of an all-squid restaurant. It's supposed to be like a Fred and Irma's restaurant, but the neon is going out, and it just says enemas. <laughs> Out front. Which I suppose if you're eating just a lot of squid. Let's say. Who knows what'll happen. And he's there just going, huh, maybe I'm not preparing the 
squid in the right way. Maybe uh, he looks in his all-squid cookbook. And he's like, squid on a stick. They really tried to make you feel sick from the very beginning. They're just chopping up that squid. Yeah. He's like, what a horrible idea for a restaurant. Yeah. He's so passionate, though. But he's really sticking you, you to it. You feel for the guy. Squid on a stick is an even stupider idea than owning a restaurant that only serves squid. Honey, you gotta remember what they said to Colonel Harlan Sanders back in 1956, right? A chicken restaurant, Colonel Sanders? You must be mad. <laughs> That's madness. You can count me in. And the waiter, of course, is played by Judd Nelson. Judd Nelson. Who's delightful. Squid is nice and all, but maybe a little diversification would be good. What I didn't realize the first time I saw it was that, of course, this is leading to cannibalism, and the person who winds up on the hook is their landlord. They're really behind on their rent. And he's like, I'm going to kick you out. His name's Mr. Chumley. Chumley's got <laughs> chum in it. But... The name puns don't end there because he was played by... Meatloaf! Meatloaf! You've got to sing his name if you're me. You do. I guess so. I love his voice. They really didn't go for the on-the-nose of them eating meatloaf. Mm-hmm. Until you said it just now, it didn't occur to me. I'm sure that there was some discussion, and then someone was like, nah. like nah. So they really mostly they eat... They were him. like, Marshall will get it later. <laughs> they eat him in steak form. So, like... like the neighborhood cop, who's like the source of some tension later. Who, I must point out, it took me a second, but for my generation, which is this guy's been almost in, like, yours. Everything. He's been in everything, but to me, this person is the ghost of Babe Ruth from The Sandlot. Right, yeah. Yeah. Everybody gets one chance to do something great. Most people never take the chance, either because they're too scared, or they don't recognize it when it spits on their shoes. So... He's got some steaks, and Judd Nelson's like, oh, I, I got a guy. You can get me steaks really cheap. And so they spend all day selling steaks. Now, here's another thing that happens in some cannibal movies, which is people don't eat human flesh and just go, oh, all right, that was fine. Meat. No. They eat the human flesh, and they're like, mmm. This is amazing. This is like the best steak I've ever had. What are, what's your secret? So, yeah. For it, example, in. Um, it, it becomes like addictive to some people. Yes. It's like they've got to have it. Were you going to say? Oh, fried green tomatoes. I wasn't even going to bring this up. Blowing my mind. Do they eat people? Okay. It's obviously been a while since you saw fried green tomatoes. So I'll give you a little refresher. Frank Bennett, who is the husband of Mary Louise Parker, the abusive husband, mm -hmm. winds up one night coming in his white robe because he's a dirty Klansman and trying to take. Her baby, she's run off with their baby to run away from him because he's a wife beater. And he gets killed. And you learn a little later in the film what's happened is it's barbecue time. They barbecue him and serve him to not all the guests at the Whistle Stop Cafe. This is not a horror film. This is a decidedly say. emotional drama. But there is a cop who's trying to investigate this man's disappearance and they serve him the barbecue that they're so famous for at the restaurant and he says i never can't get enough that he comes in every couple months and visits and sniffing around and, and he's asking the waitress what is it about this and she says secrets in the sauce here you go that's your fourth one today i swear you're about to eat up all my barbecue but to your point, he's like, this is the finest barbecue I've ever had. There's something about human yeah. flesh that's also just intoxicating. In, I mean, it's addictive and ravenous. In The uh, the Simpsons, the Nightmare Cafeteria that we covered last month. Yeah. It's not that just that they start eating kids, but that the faculty, you know, Miss Krabappel got like really huge and fat. She couldn't <laughs> get enough of it. <laughs> 
I guess it goes along with the whole like idea of it being taboo to eat human yeah, flesh. Therefore, why wouldn't it fall in line with most other taboos, which tend to come with addictive properties? Like a sinful, like a sinfully delicious property. But yes, you're right. In this episode of Tales from the Crypt, the cop, along with everyone else who's eating there, because mm. business suddenly starts booming because they have the best steaks in Can't town. Can't get enough. Can't get enough of this delicious, delicious steak. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is not the first time Meatloaf, the actor, was eaten. No. In Rocky Horror, they're just like, hey, Frankenfurter, what's your secret? Rah, Eddie. <laughs> You're eating Eddie. For some reason, I feel like I always forget when I'm watching Rocky Horror how brutal it is that when Frankenfurter kills him like it's so shocking and yes of course the fact that he gets eaten so there he is eating again i'm gonna call the cops and what are you gonna tell him fred that i killed your landlord because you owed him money well, there's not a whole lot of motive in that and i wasn't even the one that cooked him your wife did that after that the episode becomes a bit of a cat and mouse because, of course, Judd Nelson, he's the one who killed the uh, landlord, and he's kind of now Christopher Reeve's character is kind he's like, of like, we're partners now, buddy. Yeah. And some time passes, and the restaurant is booming, because who doesn't love people? I guess you could say I'm a people person. <laughs> and I wondered, who were they eating all this time? Yeah. There was that sort I of supply of drifters who, like, lived in a homeless shelter across the street. You think it was them? I, th I think so, yeah. <gasps> right. Because they were pretty well established. Yeah, I was even wondering that first day where again. they said business was booming all day. I was like, could they have fed all of those people off of meatloaf? He was a really big guy. He was, but I drifters don't know. are a bit scrawny. Yeah. But where does all that meat come from though? I really? have a feeling it was like other but drifters. Thighs, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a butcher. And in all this time, the wife never goes into the freezer. And yet at the very end, like the twist at the end, she seems that she's totally on board. Yeah. So it's not really clear when she came on board. I tried not to think that through too much because it was such a fun twist. Yeah. But it ends with, like, the cop going, like, you know, I've, I've gotten a taste. It's like, oh, he's hooked. Because why wouldn't you be? Yeah. Presumably. Yeah. We don't know. I've never eaten human flesh. Me neither. But according to some of these things, it's, like, oh, the greatest meat you've ever had. But it's such a lovely Tales from the Crypt episode because it it's all about comeuppance and like there's a twist at the end doesn't always totally make sense but the simplicity of the like twisted morality tale of most episodes of lots of episodes of Tales yeah. from the Crypt is uh, really satisfying. And there's a cop going, well I'm a cannibal now and I love it. <laughs> Eating Raul. Is it a thriller? Is it a romance? This was very wrong. Is it a tragedy? Excuse me. May I sit down? Yeah. Is it a comedy? Yes, but not the type of you're used to. Eating Raul. All right, Kat, I checked out a couple other things. Eating Raul. I really didn't know what it was about. I knew it was called Eating Raul, so eventually some guy named Raul is going to get eaten. <laughs> to my delight, I found that it was directed by and starring Paul Bartel. And his co-star was Mary Warnoff. The sexy and odd Mary Warnoff. The sexy and odd Mary Warnoff, both out of uh, the Corman films. We know her from lots of things, Night of the Comet. Night of the Comet. House of the Devil. 
and uh, Death Race 2000, mm -hmm. directed by Paul Bartel. Mm. Those two have kind of been a thing. They're both in a Hollywood Boulevard, which is really fun. It was a satire of life in the early 80s and really dealt a lot with swingers. It seems that their apartment kept getting mixed up for a swinger party and they wound up having to beat two guys with a frying pan. Just for the reality of this film, it makes like a cartoonish bong. <laughs> and they're like, well, you've killed him. Well, let's get rid of the body. But they're keeping whatever money was in their wallets because they want to open up their own restaurant. So it's kind of the 80s dream of killing to get ahead. Enter Raul who was you know, breaking into their apartment, sees what they're doing, and says like, hey, what are you doing with the bodies? I can take them off your hands. And it turns out he's selling them. I'm like, they're gonna eat them! Uh, no, no one gets eaten until the very end. He sells them to like a dog food thing, and they continue to kill swingers in various, mostly funny, methods. Mm -hmm. Always with a frying pan, but they like, they really explore fetishes along the way. What is she supposed to be? A cartoon mouse. Man, I hate to see a beautiful woman degraded like that. They do, at the end, eat Raul. But what It'd I liked... It'd be darn dissatisfying if they didn't. Yeah, being they that just that's the title of the, Yeah. So you know what happens to Raul? Raul, played by Robert Baltrand, who was the guy in Night of the Comet. Hi. Hi. Jeff and the sea. Two girls running around here. One's a cheerleader. The cutie pie? Yeah. With the, like... But the, he was a truck driver. Right. Also, he was on Voyager. Mm. Star Trek Voyager. And so it's him and Mary Warnoff together again. They only got one scene together in Night of the Comet, mm -hmm. but it was a pretty good scene. And in Eating Raul, they become lovers. Oh, my. So if you've ever uh, wanted some Night of the Comet fan fiction... <laughs> <laughs> you can find it in Eating Raul. Yeah. Moving on. You should all know that the phone lines have been cut, the front and back doors have been welded shut, and as most of you already know, I presume, there are no windows in this cantina Paquita. So basically what I'm telling you here is that the stage has clearly been set for an old-school, pseudo-European, gangster-style slumber party. And then just today, I felt I could use another comedy. I watched Gravy from last year. Have you heard of it? No. It was recommended to me by a coworker. And she was like, you like horror movies? Watch Gravy. I just watch Gravy. It's like, mm, all right. Months later, have you watched Gravy? No, no, I'm uh, kind of busy over here. Got to watch a bunch of cannibal movies. Gravy's a cannibal movie. <laughs> like, oh, well, then I'm out of excuses. And it's really more of a black comedy, which is wall-to-wall -wall pop culture references. So if a well-placed pop culture reference gets you going, then this is a movie for you. I've enjoyed that a time or two. Although, are we talking about the, like, scary movie type of a thing? No, the vampires um, suck kind of a thing? Or no. good? Closer to Scream, I guess, in that, like, every other expression out of the killer's mouth refers to some movie or song or bit of pop culture. Mm. And it's Halloween night, and a Mexican restaurant is closing, and that Mexican restaurant is called Raul's. Huh. <laughs> And you see that only slightly after a character identifies herself as coming from Haddonfield. Oh. So, I see. Get it? I get it. That's kind of where this movie's pitched. And then they take the staff of the restaurant hostage for the evening and torment them while one by one eating them. 
There's a lot of yakety yak for a lot of the movie, during which a lot of the just pop culture bombs left uh-huh, and right. Uh-huh. Some gore, some good actors in it. Gabrielle Sibido. Gabrielle Sidibe? Sidibe? Uh-huh. She's in it. But then once, kind of like Green Inferno, you know, it's all like, how do you get out of this? What do I do? Do I negotiate? Do I pretend to this? What's my, you know, the ace up my sleeve? For the last third, the uh, the gore just keeps on coming. And characters who you think would make it, you're like, well, if they've made it this far, it looks like it's in the bag. And then people just start getting knocked off. And it's a series of pretty um, gory. Looking at the poster, I can see that this is certainly a... Oh my goodness, I never even saw the poster. Yeah, and it looks like Jimmy Simpson, who I've met, who's very nice and very funny, and he was in, um, he was on House of Cards for a while, and Sutton Foster's in this movie, Lily Cole, did I say Sarah Silverman? No. Wow, this is a real who's who. Sarah Silverman is in a scene at the beginning and the end Mm. at a um, convenience store that I passed on my way here. It's on Magnolia. (laughs) It's it's pretty distinct looking. But it's one of those things where it's just like, ah, Hollywood. I know where that is. It's by the Taco Bell. Such an odd cast of characters. Oh my gosh, my friend Molly is in this. Molly Ephraim, how funny. Well then. Okay. To you, Kat, and all fans of Molly Ephraim, check out Gravy. It's a good time. There's kind of a reason you never heard of it, Mm -hmm. if you've never heard of it, because it didn't make the biggest splash. Uh, Certainly impressed my coworker. Yeah. Probably mostly as it impressed me, which to me, it just sort of came out of nowhere. I'm just like, what's this gravy film? I don't even know. What? These people are in it? What's happening? (laughs) Well, and I think I speak for lots of horror fans. Certainly I speak for myself when I say I'm always on the lookout for something that's interesting. And if even a part of it is slightly different from anything I've seen before, it's usually time well spent. All right. Just even if there's a nugget. So yeah, gravy. Ladle it out into your viewing. Oh boy. Not all the puns, uh... (laughs) <laughs> Come as into your viewing bowl of soup where you would ladle things into. Um, you would ladle I, gravy onto soup? We have lost the thread. Uh, 100%. Of, of this pun. I'm drunk on Mexi Coca Cola. Everything is food, food, food. Everything is food to go. Everything is food for thought. thought about this at all. Me neither. So this is all going to be off the cuff. Same. Which is, Kat, we agree that cannibalism is pretty scary. But what is it about it that, like, really freaks us out? More than, like, getting shot with a gun. Mm-hmm. Or stabbed, or strangled, or electrocuted, or any number of things. But the idea of being eaten. Or the idea of having to eat. That's the part. To me, that's you sca- think that's worse. More of it? If I were dead, 
and you needed like if I died and we the, we were the avalanche. Oh no, Marshall and Cat are trying to survive, and then Cat dies. I would be angry at you from beyond the grave if you didn't use my flesh to sustain yourself. That doesn't squick me out. I kind of feel like if I'm already dead, I don't care what happens to my body. That's fine. You know, um, in most of these scenarios, I would be eaten first, just because I'm so much larger than you. What I did end up reading in my Donner Party research and my other cannibalism research is when there is a group of people who are dying of starvation, women tend to live longer because our bodies store fat differently and hold on to it longer than men's do. So men tend to die out first. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I would probably be eating you. Now... Thanks? You're welcome. No, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, obviously the idea of like someone carving my flesh off of my body while I'm alive and eating it, disgusting. Or, like, I think worse than anything would be being forced to eat human flesh if I didn't want to. And That's just that a like. gross out. Ooh, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Like, how, I mean, I, I guess it's just a gross out factor. And it just feels fundamentally wrong, which is why in a lot of these survival stories, the real ones that you read about, and I read through a lot of them, but like the Donner Party, the Uruguay plane crash, there's always someone or multiple people who resist as long as they can. Even when the decision is made by some of the group, like, okay, we're going to have to eat Jim, there's always a holdout person who's like, I cannot do that. But most of the time they cave. You get hungry enough, you're probably going to do it. I can't say exactly what it is about it that repulses us. It's not a germ thing. Mm-hmm. No. It's just a, it's a taboo, like, it just doesn't, it feels wrong. Yeah. It's an in, these, inexplicably these wrong these thing. food. Right. And turn people into food. I guess it's just at a very base level. I suppose but some of that has to do with the culture you're born and raised in. Like, we eat cows, but we don't eat dogs. And then there are cultures who won't eat cows, and they think it's horrible that we do. And a lot of cultures across the world throughout history have had cannibalism as a part of their culture, where it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was just like, if someone died, well, this is the way to honor them. And it's, in fact, disrespectful if you don't. If you grow up knowing that's if that's normalized to you, then it's not icky and weird, I guess. All right. I guess we're just uh, products of our culture and that I really don't want to eat somebody. And I don't really want to be eaten. No, I don't want to be. Oh, no, I I didn't didn't need your clarification. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I don't want to be. So wherever that lurks inside of us, whether it's learned behavior or just sort of hardwired into us, when we see it, especially in those parts like where they're like preparing the food, but it's not down to just being meat yet, mm. but it's still got human features. An ankle attached to it. Mm. Yeah, it'll just be like a stew pot with a hand in it or something. <laughs> those parts are always like quite harder to stomach. Hello. I'm going to go out on a successful pun. <laughs> God knows it's been hard enough. All right. Thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in with us. I feel Uh, like the cannibal subject ended up being delightful. On brand for boys and ghouls. It could have been a really dark topic, and it was fun. You went right up to probably almost saying delicious. Damn it! No. Missed opportunity. Hey, Kat. Yeah. (laughs) You're such a wordsmith. You've been uh, doing a little something on the side. If you want to tell us about it. Yeah. I'm very excited to say that I've been brought on to write about 
television for a horror website. Horror television. Arch- horror television. Mm-hmm. So it's um it's a website called the Horror Honeys, and there are thirteen of us, and most of the girls cover horror movies. So they have a girl. So who- it's an all female staff. All female. There's a girl who covers revenge films, one who does horror sci-fi, one who does slashers. The list goes on. And rather than just having one TV, honey, because as we all know, there's a lot of it is the horror television. Golden age of television. It is. According um, to many. So there are two of us that tackle TV, and uh, it's very new for me, but sometimes I'm doing episode recaps, but you can find the horror honeys. Just Google. They're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And H-U-N-N-Y-S? No, no, no. Honey, like honeybees. You know what? I was spelling it how Winnie the Pooh writes it on the side That's- of his... Absolutely adorable. It's you, NNY. That's adorable. But yes, yeah, so, and also, I haven't yet, I'm still pretty new to the team, but they are putting out a monthly horror magazine, much like like a Rue Morgue or something called Belladonna. The printed page? The printed page. And I, I will be submitting some stuff to them soon, so hopefully in the next couple months I'll have, a, I'll have something in the magazine, but it's called Belladonna. But yeah, f- come find the Horror Honeys. And um, so far I've been watching a couple of things, but what I'm more excited about than anything is the uh, new Dana Gould created IFC show called Stand Against Evil, starring John C. McGinley. That's really charming. And it's not perfect, but it's really fun, and I love the tone of it, and I love John C. McGinley more than anything, so. For more thoughts of cats on this topic, check it out at Horror Honeys. Yep. All right. Spread those wings. <laughs> Thanks. And, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for um, sticking with us through this uh, whole topic. If you haven't already, please find us on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and Kat, you're uh, in charge of our Instagram. Mm-hmm. Just to uh, keep up with um, just the nice horror things we post. Since we only post an episode, uh, you know, a full theme, heavily researched, fun, main episode of Boys and Ghouls once a month on the 13th. It's a good way to get stuff from us throughout the month. And also, if you need to ask us questions or sometimes we've had people request topics at boysandghouls at gmail.com. Or if you got anything to say, tell us about yourself. We know that listeners are out there, but we don't know who you are. We don't get that information around. We know who some of them are. Because they've written us. Because they've written us. (laughs) That's really it. Unless you stop us on the street. And that's only happened once. Did it happen? Yeah. Remember? Outside of a scare Oh, Melissa and Ken. Yeah. That's true. You'd never met in real life before. No, we had not. I don't know if she was completely sure it was us, because like first she just goes, boys and ghouls. (laughs) It was like a test (laughs) phrase to send out to us. And to like, see if we'd perk up. What? I, I know that term. Yeah. <laughs> and then she was like, hey, it's me, and you're you, and you, you mailed me a CD. So, yeah, barring seeing us on the street, please find us. Also at boysandghouls at gmail.com is a pretty direct route. And, uh, well, Kat, until the next time we meet. Beware the moon. Beware the moon. Beware.